0: The government is promising new reforms for the aquaculture sector to turn it into a billion-dollar industry. The once-booming business has been snagged by red tape, environmental clashes and court battles, and no new marine farm applications have been granted for five years. But promises have been made before, and in this Radio New Zealand Insight programme, Geoff Moffat asks what's likely to happen this time.
1: I'm looking out in Palora Sound, at mussel farms which stretch over many bays in the most intensive aquaculture area of New Zealand. The Sounds is one of those coastal areas which could see more development if there are reforms allowing it. Since mussel farming began in this region in the 1960s, aquaculture has boomed and then stuttered and stagnated. Reforms have been tried before but have failed to untangle regional council regulations and environmental hurdles. Legal battles over entitlement to coastal space have cost millions of dollars. Some farm applications have been tied up for a decade, and many marine farmers have sold up in disgust. But now there are proposed new reforms, and although the exact details are yet to be seen, they're promising to more than triple the value of this industry. Huge export earnings are beckoning, using New Zealand's relatively clean coastal waters like this to help meet the boom in global demand for seafood.
2: It's six years since the 2004 reforms, the moratorium kicked off in 2001. Basically, I mean, it's a bit of a cliché, but it's a lost decade.
1: Mike Burrell, the chief executive of the industry body Aquaculture New Zealand, says the national-led government appears to have the will to make the changes for which marine farmers are crying out. They want a simpler farm application process, more certainty for farm leases, and the chance to experiment with new species. The government has welcomed a report by a technical advisory group, or TAG, which recommends regulatory changes, encouraging the creation of dedicated aquaculture zones by regional councils, and possibly even allowing ministerial intervention to provide this space. One proposal is to remove the current prohibition on aquaculture outside strictly defined regional coastal areas, but already the environmental lobby is sounding the alarm.
3: How are we going to be able to stop it? It's like, a, it's like a giant steamroller that's about to be unleashed on the sounds. And I'm telling you, mate, we don't have a hope in how to stop it.
1: Pete Beach from the Guardians of the Marlborough Sounds watchdog group says the pressure is on for more salmon farming in the sounds. Potential new reforms, he says, will open the floodgates. But Mike Burrell from Aquaculture New Zealand is worried that what he calls extreme views will derail potential reforms.
2: And my fear is that, the, for rhetorical reasons, people will pick, go into their corners and come out with a whole lot of rhetoric, which is quite, well, it's extreme. You know, it's 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 setting things off to a real extreme. And so we've already heard some comments about the industry growing, needing four times the space and all this kind of stuff. I mean, that's rhetoric. That's not true. Um, The industry doesn't need that amount of space, and there isn't that amount of inshore space anyway, even if we wanted it. It's not there.
1: For many people, the township of Havelock is a mere drive-through on the highway between Blenheim and Nelson. But this community, perched at the entrance to Kenapuru and Palora Sound, proudly calls itself the green-shell muscle capital of the world. Avelock can indeed lay claims as the birthplace of the mussel farming industry and some of its early pioneers are still here. They would just point at us and make make fun of of us when we first started. It wasn't long before they started to see the potential and got into it themselves. Clem Mellish and wife Pym were among the Marlborough Sound's mussel farming pioneers in the 1970s. They were simpler days, find a space and apply for a permit. It was the start of mum and dad marine farming and the pioneers had to make it up as they went along. Very hard on the back because everything was done over the side of the boat. We had, when we first started we really didn't have any lifting gear either. It wasn't long before we had little winch-operated davits but, um, but everything was hoisted up with a boat hook and tied onto the side of the boat and in rough weather that was pretty,
4: pretty tough going.
1: Clem Malish built up a number of farms but sold out in the 1980s. Now he's a master carver of pendants and musical instruments in jade and stone, mostly for wife Pym's gallery in Havelock. Mussel and oyster farming flourished through the 1980s as many saw the potential of the industry but then became stymied in the 1990s as it ran into environmental challenges under the new Resource Management Act. Jeff Marr owns a vineyard in Nelson these days, but from the 1980s he went from being a freezing worker to building a sizeable business in the Marlborough Sounds, co-owning three dozen mussel farms. He says his real problems began after the RMA was introduced in 1991, and he began battling environmental objections at council hearings and in the Environment Court.
0: As long as somebody didn't want it to happen, for very little cost, they can create you a massive cost structure and because it was heard by judges that really didn't understand marine farming at all, they just took people's word and people lied through their teeth at every hearing.
1: For 25 years or more, Golden Bay environmentalist Alan Vaughan has been a thorn in the side of the aquaculture industry. He says he's never been against marine farming per se. He says he just wanted to protect the renowned Golden Bay shoreline for all to enjoy.
5: I just felt that a line of demarcation needed to be drawn officially inside of which the rights of local residents to have full access unimpeded to their beaches and to row their boats and to take the little motorboats out and catch fish uh, should be sacrosanct. And that was my aim all the
1: way along. As interest in the marine farming industry boomed, the government stepped in with moratoriums to put aquaculture applications on hold in the 1980s and 90s and then for another two years from 2001. In 2004, the government announced what it called breakthrough reforms requiring regional councils to identify and zone aquaculture management areas. But Keith Palmer, the chief executive of Nelson-based Wakatuan Corporation, a diversified Maori-owned company with large interests in aquaculture, says the process failed. He says it was too expensive and complex for councils.
6: They've got no incentives under the AMA Act The councils were to create water space, but it was impossible to do because how could they spend money that little old lady wanted to spend on the footpath so that she could get down to the library in a wheelchair and take the money and spend it to create water space for the capitalists. It just was never going to work. It was ridiculous.
1: Marlborough produces more than two-thirds of the country's 100,000-tonne mussel harvest, with Sanford's Mussel Factory in Havelock a major employer and processor. In Marlborough, 600 marine farms occupy about 3,000 hectares of the sounds. All but a dozen or two are in the kenna and Polaris sounds. Graham Coates from the Marine Farming Association says the Marlborough District Council has led the way in New Zealand aquaculture after recognising the economic value of mussel farming. It was the first regional council to create a coastal plan allowing aquaculture spaces.
7: What Marlborough did is said, hey, this is just another activity in the coastal marine zone. Let's plan for it like you do every in, for the, any other activity on land or in sea and make rules and people can apply. And the rules will be tested, and but they will establish themselves and people will get on with it. The difference between that and the other regions of New Zealand is they didn't embrace on either consideration of aquaculture happening in their areas, or they did it in such a haphazard way that uh, applicants could walk through their plan.
1: While Marlborough Sound's marine farmers have done relatively well, across from the fertile waters of Tasman and Golden Bays, there've been years of frustration. They've faced stiff opposition from people worried that beaches and bays would be taken over by marine farms and the peace and quiet would be shattered by the sounds of harvesting. Some applications for farms were tied up for years in hearings and environment court cases. Good morning Tasman District Council,
3: how can I help?
1: In 1996 the Tasman District Council began placing an imaginary three nautical mile line around the coast, prohibiting close inshore farming but leaving the area outside for potential aquaculture. The result was an unholy clamour for space. The Council was overwhelmed by application for 16,000 hectares of coastal water. This not only appalled environmentalists, but commercial fishing companies with Scallop and Inshore Fishing Quota launched a massive battle to protect what they saw as their property rights. Dennis Bush-King is the Tasman Council's Environment and Planning Manager. I guess
5: you've got to see it this way, that we are dealing with public space. There are sort of competing values associated with that. And I guess that's what, you know, meant people were prepared to, to fight for those interests.
1: And fight they did. Hearings and appeals and environment court proceedings to define aquaculture areas for the district spanned eight years. Dennis Bush-King estimates the proceedings cost $12 million, although some put the figure as high as $20 million. Fishing companies like Tally's were prepared to fight tooth and nail to protect their quota rights from the advances of marine farming. New Zealand's largest listed seafood company, Sanford Limited, also fought for its rights. Its chief executive, Eric Barrett, says it may seem an irony that companies like his were, on the one hand, arguing against marine farming to protect inshore fishing interests, and on the other, pursuing marine farming space for its aquaculture division.
5: I don't think it needs to be seen as a conflict. I think providing uh, this relatively sensible dialogue, and, and communications that uh, the space issues can be easily resolved between aquaculture interests and fishing interests, and uh, we're part of both.
1: But with any new reforms, it won't be just a matter of fishing companies agreeing on the use of water space. Recreational boaties are demanding a say too. Well, whose bloody water is it? Whose is all
3: that sea space out there? Does, does it only belong to the government as the people's agent, Maori and commercial fishers or does it actually include the rest of us as well? And if it does include the rest of us then why aren't we involved in that conversation?
1: Nelson Orchardist Jeff Rolding is in the middle of the apple harvest. He's also president of the New Zealand Recreational Fishing Council which he says speaks for hundreds of thousands of boaties. Mr Rowling says proposed new industry reforms could cause a gold rush for marine farming space. I'm yet
3: to be convinced that there's anything in there that, that stops a gold rush occurring. So, yeah, you know, although the present economic climate, that won't occur in the short term, but it doesn't mean that if the framework isn't there that allows that kind of gold rush stuff to take place, that it could occur.
1: Following Marlborough and the top of the South Island, the Coromandel is New Zealand's next largest marine farming area. It produces a fifth of all green shell mussels and after years of hearings and appeals, a further 500 hectares of aquaculture space is close to being
4: allocated in Wilson's Bay. We now have uh, about a thousand hectares of water occupied with shellfish culture in the Firth of Thames and that includes the Wilson Bay area, which is uh, the largest consented single marine farm in the country now.
1: Bill Brownell from ACRE, the Environmental Committee which advises Environment Waikato, says the concerns for the Firth of Thames include the impact from increasing marine farms on whales and dolphins and navigation issues for recreational boaties.
4: The Ministry of Transport has been quite concerned in the whole process about uh, all these farms that are spreading out more and more, and there's a huge amount of boating activity here in the Firth of Thames. It's a very important recreational fishing ground.
1: Bill Brownell is a marine ecologist who has worked with marine farmers. He says he's not anti-aquaculture, but he's concerned about what he describes as the industrialisation of the Firth of Thames if further development takes place especially if finfish
4: farming is allowed. There are some pretty major concerns there. Uh, The biggest one probably is the fact that uh, it requires a huge amount of wild fish to be harvested and ground up, and it's usually in faraway places like Peru and Chile and Morocco where big ocean-going fleets from other countries around the world are going out and targeting these fish, grinding them all up and turning them into fish meal and big factory trawlers and then shipped around the world, a huge amount of ecological footprint in the process, and even if you're only using 10 to 15 percent of uh, fish meal in your artificial diets, it represents not only a very unsustainable way of fishing and utilizing that food, but it's also cutting down on an important step in the whole food chain,
1: Allowing more caged fish farming in New Zealand seems likely to trigger a clash between the industry and environmentalists. Here in the Marlborough Sounds, the Malaysian-owned New Zealand King Salmon Company operates six salmon farms, turning over 90 million dollars a year. The company wants to open more in Tory Channel but needs a coastal plan change to allow it. That process at Marlborough District Council is underway and could be finalised within a year. It's a looming expansion which has Guardians of the Sounds leader Pete Beach fuming.
3: We should not allow large companies, especially multinational companies, we should not allow for them to be able to set their sights on an inland. Get their chequebook out and buy it.
1: Pete Beach says in areas of salmon farming, faeces and uneaten meal pile up high on the sea floor. However, Mark Gillard from the Salmon Farming Association says Marlborough salmon farming has a tiny environmental footprint.
6: We do have an effect on the seabed. It's very limited in extent, it's, it's limited to tens of metres from the edges of the cages. And like I say, it's recoverable.
1: Paul Steer, the chief executive of New Zealand King Salmon for 15 years until his retirement last year, says New Zealand is the world's major producer of Chinook salmon and any expansion must be carefully managed to preserve
6: hard-won, high-value markets overseas. I think there is a huge potential available, provided it's done sensibly and provided it builds on that cachet of New Zealand's uh, uh, food safety, Uh, cleanliness and smartness. At the
1: plant and food research facility in Nelson scientist Alistair Gerrit shows where tank trials to grow butterfish are underway. It's their second year of trialing the species for four companies. They have a number of attributes that are really interesting. They're very placid, they're very sociable in a lot of ways, they don't have a lot of predation. While the trials of butterfish are in the early stages Another research agency, NIWA, says kingfish is ready to be farmed immediately. The National Institute for Water and Atmospheric Research has been working for eight or nine years to develop kingfish and hapoka, or groper. NIWA believes these species can deliver the lion's share of a $1 billion aquaculture industry. NIWA's General Manager, Strategy Dr Bryce Cooper, says if reforms allow, a start could be made straight away on farming kingfish and Harpoka could follow in two years.
2: There's great potential to grow a lot of kingfish in New Zealand, particularly in the northern waters from, say, around Bay of Plenty North. They like that warmer water. You know, with returns around a million dollars or so per hectare, clearly with 100 hectares you could have a $100 million industry. But what you do need to look at is at the market end as well.
1: While kingfish would have to be grown in warmer waters, Dr Cooper says harpooka could potentially be farmed in the cooler Marlborough Sounds. Trials on behalf of Sea Lord have been held in Wellington Harbour. For one of Coromandel's largest mussel farmers, Peter Batasevich, kingfish farming is an exciting prospect. For that to happen, though, environment Waikato would have to make a coastal plan change allowing the species to be farmed. Mr Vitasovic, the Chairman of Aquaculture New Zealand, says the current rules around the country allowing only mussels, oysters and salmon to be farmed makes no sense. The hurdles to to get over those barriers to change a species have been huge. This first was
0: muted in 2004, 2005, and that was five or six years ago. You know, We've done a lot of work with Environment Waikato. They've uh, probably done the best they could, but they have been hamstrung. And it'll probably be another four or five years before a fish is able to get into the water. So you might as well say it's taken ten years uh, for someone to get a, an idea to do something
1: and before they can even put a trial in the water. While Peter Vitasovich is eyeing up kingfish, Sanford wants commercial trout farming. The managing director Eric Barrett says existing mussel farms as far north as the Marlborough Sounds could be converted for sea trout. While he and others are hoping new reforms will open the way for new species, the green shell remains the king of aquaculture for the time being, worth about two-thirds of the industry's value. So what is its potential for growth?
4: Um, this is part of the nursery where we're holding before it goes out into the outside nursery.
1: Henry Kaspar has been with the independent Nelson-based researcher, the Cawthron Institute, for 30 years and has played a leading role in developing muscle spat or juvenile mussel to replace wild spat dr kaspar says selective breeding has produced a superior shellfish and that's the key to expanding export markets and higher returns
0: coming from the selective breeding program grow faster than wild mussels they are more uniform uh, they are a lot more predictable they're all exactly the same age each cohort and so um, not only should they be more productive, but they should also be easier and more cost-effective to process.
1: Farmers like Mark Azelby in the Firth of Thames are convinced the unique properties and quality of the New Zealand green shell mussel are not being properly
6: marketed. Instead of more water space, we really need some real positive selling. Perhaps money injected from central government or some real positive. Advertising, instead of it individually, if we can be a bit more like what the fruit went through, you know, if we could combine the selling or, or get it a bit more organised than what we're doing at the moment, it's, it's not good for industry, you know. The, they were talking um, of being a billion dollar industry by 25, yeah 25, but I can't see that the way things are at the moment.
1: The Maori-owned Wakatuan Corporation is set to develop its own large-scale research and development centre in Nelson, the Chief Executive Keith Palmer says its Hoyorangi facility will commercialise new and improved species. He believes the day of the mussel has peaked, and it will be the new higher value species which will lead the charge to the $1 billion
6: promised land. It's the lowest price seafood protein available, so it's not getting its recognition in, in the international markets. And even though everyone in New Zealand knows what a greenlit mussel is, Unfortunately, the rest of the world don't. And in the Northern Hemisphere, where in Spain, France, there's big demand for blue mussels, they want live mussels. Now, we can export live crayfish, because of the value, that's worth $70 a kilo, but you can't afford to export live mussels, which are only worth, when they come out of the water, $0.50 cents a kilo.
1: Graham Coates from the Marine Farming Association says if the aquaculture industry is to be reformed, and there's competition for water space among farmers, the winner should be the one which can show the best return on investment. In the end,
7: the government needs to say, if it's batting for New Zealand, what is giving us the best economic returns for this area? It's what happens on land, and for some reason we're sort of saying it can't happen on sea, but I think my reading is this government is... It's about development and about taking away roadblocks.
1: Whatever the final reforms, the industry will continue to face a battle with other users demanding a share of coastal water space. One industry response has been to look to farm further out to sea. Massive farms of 3,000 hectares and more have already been allocated off the coasts of Bay of Plenty, Hawke's Bay and Canterbury. However, Mike Murrell from Aquaculture New Zealand says farming in deeper, rougher seas
2: is a technical challenge that's still to be overcome. It will take a bit of time, just as mussel farming did and just as salmon farming did. I mean, salmon farming basically took a decade and a half before it grew up and got to a point where it was um, it was viable. And that's exactly the same, I think, with offshore farming. The other thing that's important there, I think, is the engineering and the technology side of it and the R&D. And one of the things that we've signalled to government is we think that's one of three areas where you know we should be working together to speed up that process.
1: In any winning reform package, farmers will also be looking for more certainty of farm lease renewals. Coromandel farmer Peter Batasevich says there's currently no encouragement to invest because farmers can have no faith that their farm permits will be extended. Yeah, Unfortunately under the
0: RMA there's no provision for a renewal of a consent. You have to apply and reapply and go through the process, and it's just like applying for a new marine farm, which is crazy. The key is having an efficient and cost-effective renewal process, so that's what we're looking for out of the new legislative reviews.
1: Many marine farmers want licences of up to 35 years. Opponents say that's effectively privatising public water space. Jeff Rowling from the New Zealand Recreational Fishing Council says the issue will create a huge debate.
3: There's some people in the marine farming industry that do have a conscience, but there are also some corporate structures that perhaps don't have quite the same amount of conscience when it comes to public access. We don't want to see all of our sheltered bays turned into marine farms, and I, and I don't think that the genuine marine farmers want to be uh, seen to be the people that have taken over all of the sheltered bays around the countryside either.
1: Whoever you talk to about the future of aquaculture, the word balance is mentioned. The balance between the rights of marine farmers and existing commercial fishermen with quota rights. The balance between economic benefit and environmental impacts. Peter Batasevich believes the economic argument is often overlooked. Places like Havelock, Kaiyo, and Coromandel,
0: you know, where we're farming, those school roles are improving. There's people coming back to those regions to be involved in the aquaculture industry because they can actually build a career around it. There's that side of it, but also there is economic development for New Zealand.
1: Late last year, the Fisheries Minister Phil Heatley said he would be seeking Cabinet approval for aquaculture reforms early this year. So far there's no word on timing or content, although some announcement is possible this month. Veteran Golden Bay environmental campaigner Alan Vaughan believes that whatever the final shape of reforms, there will be a public outcry against any move to expand marine farming.
5: There will be too much opposition, one way or another, there will be too much opposition against it from the public and everything will be challenged, it will be another round after round after round of challenge, challenge, challenge and appeal. By by whom? Well those people that are already using the space for fin fishing and for scallops and things like that they aren't going to take that lightly if they lose that space.
1: Golden Bay marine farmer Bill Wallace who says he applied to the Tasman District Council in the 90s for a farm extension and has been waiting ever since is skeptical about the impact of any reforms.
7: Now, application in front of the TDC is for 240 lines in a strip 700 metres further off from the existing block of farms. That is our group's interest here.
1: Is that going (laughs) to (laughs) happen? Possibly not in my lifetime. But Mike Burrell from Agriculture New Zealand says he's hopeful a billion dollar industry could finally be in sight.
2: Basically the industry can't grow at anywhere near the rate to keep up with international demand and with our competitors under the current system. We don't have the the flexibility to be able to modify the farm so that we can have a different mix of species to meet demand and we don't have the ability to be able to release new space in a timely manner. This this year is absolutely critical for the industry to get it right.
0: That's Mike Burrell from Aquaculture New Zealand ending that Radio New Zealand Insight programme by Geoff Moffat. Technical production was by William Saunders and it was produced by Sue Ingram.